Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It is by knowing promises like these that we're able to you know, claim these promises in terms of the faith rest drill as we grow and mature in Christian life. It also is part of what uh, pro- provides us with a solid base for our prayer life as we see in our study in 1 Kings chapter 8. So before we get started and resume our study in 1 Kings, let's bow our heads together. Have a few moments of silent prayer. If you give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all that you have revealed to us. We're thankful for what you have revealed to us about yourself, that even though you are ineffable and incomprehensible, nevertheless, we can comprehend true and accurate information about you based on what you have revealed to us. Father, as we study the things that we do about you, your essence, and how this impacts your word, the promises you have made, and our own communication with you in terms of prayer, we pray that you will strengthen our prayer life, our understanding of prayer, and that we can be more effective, more biblical in the way we structure our prayers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1st Kings, 1st Kings chapter 8, and last week we covered verses 22 and 23, which sets up Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication at, uh, at the temple. So we'll just start there in verse, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven. This gives us the setting. We know from Second uh, Chronicles that he built a platform so that he is elevated about uh, three feet above the ground so that he's visible to the crowds that are there at the dedication of the temple. He stands and then he kneels as he uh, brings his prayer uh, before God. We saw the background for understanding this prayer is the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, and this is seen by what he says, how he structures his request to God, and it's also seen in the vocabulary that he, that he uses in the prayer, because he uses words and terms that take us back to terms that are used in the context of the giving of both the Mosaic Covenant as well as the Davidic Covenant. He is structuring his prayer on the basis of these former promises that God gave, promises of judgment, 
promises of blessing, promises of forgiveness, promises of recovery and restoration of the Israelites to the land after he has made it clear to them in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy uh, 29, 30, that they would go out of the land and that they would be uh, disobedient. God would take them out of the land, but eventually he would restore them to the land. And so that's the, that's the basis for this prayer. And we see that as uh, Solomon has allowed his mind under the principles given, as a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, that the, that the king is supposed to write out, hand write out, a copy of the law for himself under the supervision of the priests, we see that the law has just saturated his thinking so that he prays in a, in a way that is uh, just enriched by this, this vocabulary. And that tells us that what he is doing is the same kind of thing we should be doing in our prayers, and that is letting the Word of God shape our vocabulary, shape our uh, intercession shape the way we structure our request, that it's just not coming to God like a magic genie and saying, God, I'd like for you to do this and you to do that, you to do this other thing, but that we look in terms of precedent in the Scripture and construct our prayers on the basis of what the, the Bible, uh, what the Bible teaches. Verse 23 He begins addressing the Lord God of Israel, the very term Lord God of Israel, using the tetragrammaton Yahweh, which is translated with the uppercase Lord in English. The name is specifically associated with the giving of the Mosaic Covenant and the Exodus. If you remember when God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses is trying to come up with some kind of excuse why he really can't go be the deliverer of the Israelites, uh, he says, okay, God, who should I tell sent me? And God says, I am that I am. This, Even though the, tr- the name Yahweh is known previously, they didn't understand its significance and its meaning. And so by identifying it as I am that I am, because the name is based on the, on the Hebrew verb to be, it indicates the e- eternality, the eternal existence the self-existence of God. So he addresses the Lord God of Israel. He is the Lord God of Israel because of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the Lord God of Israel because of the Mosaic covenant, where he enters into this contractual relationship with Israel. Then Solomon says, There's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. And last time I traced this phrase, uh, there's no God like you through its uses. In Moses uses it in Exodus 15 in his prayer that we studied both last week and on and on Sunday. It is uh, it's used again by David in 2 Samuel 7:22 in response to the giving of the Davidic covenant. It's used in 1 Chronicles 17:20, the parallel passage that records the same the same prayer, and it's used in Psalm 89:8, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness always surrounds you. And this term faithfulness is a core concept undergirding the covenants, that God is a faithful God. The word there in the Hebrew is emunah, faithfulness, steadfastness. It's a root that is 
the root word sort of branched out in two directions. One in the direction of faithfulness or steadfastness, that which you could rely upon. And then it goes in a slightly different direction with the concept of truth or truthfulness. And God's truthfulness and his faithfulness are very closely related ideas in the Hebrew. And the root word here is also used to describe the foundation stone of the gates of the uh, of, the, of the temple, and so it is such a solid, large rock that nothing can shake it, nothing can rattle it, nothing can de- destabilize it. Psalm 89 is also a very important passage, as we saw last time, because of its focus on uh, four key attributes in the uh, character of God, his righteousness, his justice, his chesed love, his loving kindness, and his veracity or truth. And these words spell out his integrity. They are vital to his relationships with anybody because his righteousness, which is from the Hebrew word tzaddik, which indicates the ethical or legal standard, the, the absolute standard of his character, and then justice has to do with the outworking or application. It's from a word mishpat, meaning the legal decisions that are made that this is the foundation of his throne. Throne is a uh, metaphor here for his rule, how he reigns over his creation, his sovereign reign. So it also brings in the background with the use of the word throne, his sovereign rule over his, his creation. And the foundation of that is his righteous standard and his justice. And so that becomes the, the basis for who God is. So when we go to God in prayer, we, he is faithful because of his character. His character is righteous. It's an absolutely perfect standard. He always equitably applies that to his creatures. That's his justice. And so we, can all, we always know that if we come to God on God's terms, we will always uh, be, be uh, treated the same way. And in the church age especially, since we come on the basis of the completed work of Christ on the cross, and he is our uh, high priestly intercessor, and the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, is also our intercessor, that when we come to him on the basis of the name of Christ, which doesn't just mean that we pray in the name of Jesus, but it means that we come on the basis of who he is and what he has done, and that that has been applied in our own lives, that when we come to him on that basis according to his will, we know that he hears us, First uh, John chapter 5. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne or his rule. Loving kindness and truth go before your face. These are the two words, chesed, meaning loyal, faithful love. It's a word much ink has been used in scholarly literature defining this word because we don't really have a a single word in English that can correspond to this and pick up its uh, all of its meaning. It doesn't simply mean love. Uh, King James, I think, translates it mercy most of the time, and it's, it's much richer than just mercy, which is just grace in action. It's more than faithfulness. It is a faithful, loyal love. God is loyal to his word, loyal to his character, and he... His love is based on this integrity. So the outworking, the loving kindness that we see here comes out from his throne. So it proceeds or proceeds from the basis of his character. 
And you can't have anyone who says who, who loves if there's no integrity behind the word love. And this is something we've completely lost in our culture, that people just think that love is sentiment, love is emotion, love is some associated with warm, fuzzy feelings, butterflies in your stomach, jitters, whatever it is, that that's love. And, you know, they can't distinguish between uh, love that's based on integrity and love that's based on hormones. And so people get in all kinds of trouble because they just can't deal with what love is. And even if you look at the dictionary, if you go home tonight and pull out Webster's Third International Dictionary, or the Oxford English Dictionary, and you look up the word love, it, it, it talks about emotion, that love is a feeling. There's nothing there that indicates anything of stability or integrity or what gives it real meaning. And they're, they're really very weak definitions. And it's one of the most difficult terms to define. And it's very difficult even in theology. Theologians have wrestled back and forth over the centuries trying to define the love of God. And it's one of those words that has, that is a, it's like a primary color. It's just a root core concept that many things flow out of. And we see in both the Old and New Testament that our love for God is manifested by our obedience to His commandments. This is something that runs as a theme through Deuteronomy, that if you love the Lord your God, you will keep His commandments. This is stated uh, seven or eight different times in the book of Deuteronomy. And then when you get into the New Testament, Jesus says in, in John, the Gospel of John several times, that if you love me, you will keep my word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so that uh, there is this relationship between character and and uh, application on the side of the believer in what he thinks and what he does in his love for God, so that love isn't measured by how you feel, but it has a it has a, an objective criterion that is related to something that is observable in in your behavior and in my behavior and your thinking and my thinking, so that we can look and say, okay, how obedient am I to the word? How consistent am I in applying the word? And that tells me how how uh, mature my love for God is. It's it's the barometer by which we measure our love. It's not based on how many times we can sing, oh, how I love Jesus and how warm and fuzzy we can feel on a Sunday morning because the pastor gives us such a motivational, uplifting message. But it's based on on understanding God's Word. We can't do what God wants us to do if we don't understand His Word where He's revealed those standards. And we can't uh, learn what God wants us to do if we don't take the time to study His Word. And we can't just you know mouth these things in simple Christian evangelical platitudes and... And just get by with it because we we feel good about it. So there's there's a important connection here. This is one of the most important verses I think we have in the Bible and in the Psalms related to the character of God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. His rule, the way he governs history, the way he governs his rule over creation is based on his righteousness and his justice. And that which flows out from the throne in terms of how he executes his rule towards man is based on loving kindness and truth. This is integrity. 
It is the wholeness of God. There's no conflict between God's righteousness on the one hand and God's love on the other hand. And this is something that developed in Protestant theology coming out of the 18th century when there was a major shift, and those of you who missed it last night <clears throat> in our History of Doctrine course, we went through this in, as we covered the, uh, uh, the whole issue of authority and bibliology and how the church understood this and how it changed in the uh, 1700s and 1800s, which set up a whole new approach for Christianity today. And just to, so that you have some idea, I'll try to boil it down review for those who were here, and they'll boil it down for those of you who weren't, up until the 1500s, up until roughly 1600, let's say, you had what is, what is termed by, by philosophers and those who periodize history, and there's different views on this, is called pre-modern thinking. And in pre-modern thinking, the, the Christians in the Western world and by that I mean those who are thinking as theists, those who are, whether they're Roman Catholic, and that's all you had prior to 1500, think that God's omniscience precedes the knowledge of man. Therefore, the knowledge of man is just a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of the omniscience of God, the infinite knowledge of God, and man's knowledge reflects God's knowledge, but God's knowledge is prior. And so we start... Our starting point for everything must be the knowledge of God. And what we have of the knowledge of God is what is in the canon of Scripture, what's in the, the uh, 66 books that we have in our Bible. But with Rene Descartes in the early 1600s, there is a major shift that takes place because as he's trying to think through a way of explaining reality, a way of explaining uh, existence, the way, some way to try to explain, and he's still operating as a theist and as a, he's a Jesuit, but as a broad, using the term Christian in a broad sense, as a Christian, he's trying to communicate to unbelievers and find an area of common ground. And so what Descartes is doing is he's trying to figure out what that basic, basic core belief is that we can all agree as a starting point for reason. And so he is, uh, he postulates this principle called doubt, and he's going to doubt everything. Not that he, he's not actually doubting everything, but he just uses doubt as a tool to try to, as it were, skim away all the dross and get down to the real core. And so he says, well, what if God is, God is just giving up me a cosmic delusion here, and it, we're all just a figment of God's imagination, you know, ever thought about that? What if you just, none of this is real. We're just a figment of God's imagination and, and we just think things are real, but it's just an illusion. And so as he's thinking this through and thinking this through and thinking this through, he, he finally comes to the realization that he's thinking. And if he's thinking, there's an element of self-consciousness. And so he says, if I'm thinking, I must exist. I don't know if, he, if, if you all exist, but I know that I'm thinking, so I must exist. So that's his Bottom line starting point, famous Latin statement, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. But what's his starting point for knowledge now? It's not God. It's man. It's the self. It's the ego. It's I. I am the starting point, and I'm going to try to figure out and build all my knowledge, not from Scripture, but from this 
rational, innate idea that I think and I can build out all my understanding from that. And this is a major shift in Western thought. It's the birth of what becomes known uh, as the Enlightenment. And this ultimately works itself out till we get down to uh, Immanuel Kant at the end of the 1800s. And Kant, uh, by that time, you've had a reaction to uh, Descartes and his rationalism, the reaction is empiricism, Locke and Berkeley and um, a couple of others, and then it culminates in David Hume and his skepticism. And so Kant invents a whole new synthesis, and he pulls together a little bit of, of Descartes' rationalism and some elements of Lockean empiricism, blends them together uh, into a whole new system, and the basic issue with Kant is, well, now you can't know things as they are. You can only know things as you perceive them, and you can never know absolute truth. Well, one of the men that is impacted by his thinking is a German pastor by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who is the father of modern religious liberalism. And Schleiermacher, after sitting in classes with Kant, realizes that, well, if you can't really know anything universal, absolute, or objective about God, then the only thing you can really know is your feeling. And so religion and Christianity is reduced to to feeling. That's how you validate it. It's just feeling. And so this lays a this has a huge impact, as you can tell, because that's where we are today. Everybody, nobody's ever heard of it. Most of the people I've mentioned, nobody's ever heard of, unless they've had some education. But they think in those terms that the only way you can validate anything is by your feelings. And so they're walking, around, they're living, walking examples of Schleiermachian theology, and don't even know it. And so we, with with the Psalms. We get back to an objective knowledge that ultimate reality is based on this integrity and there's objective information. It's not about feeling. It's about integrity. And love is not about feeling. Love is about integrity. And love, is a, love to be love has to be built on righteousness and justice, and if there is no righteousness and justice, then there can't be love. You can't have a God who is love if he is not an eternally righteous, just God. If he is a whimsical God, if he is a God that does not have, that is not inherently uh, righteous, uh, then he can't be love. So these four ideas are connected in this particular verse. And then the final characteristic of God, his truth, loving kindness and truth go before your face. So his relationship with man is based on uh, his chesed love, his truth, which flows out of his righteousness and his justice. Now when the psalmist writes this, and when Solomon is praying this in uh, 1 Kings 8, uh, 23 and 24, what's in the background of his mind are two passages out of Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy. Exodus, we read, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, that's in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, 
Compassion is from uh, the word for the womb, rachim, which means has to do with his compassion. Gracious is the Hebrew word hen. He's slow to anger and abounding in chesed and emet, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives. And here we have one of several words used for forgiveness in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we'll get to this at the end of this prayer because that's the, the what, what Solomon's driving to in this prayer is going to be that God will forgive the people when they sin and he'll be true to his promises. And that just sets up the introduction for the prayer. But he's going back to this, that God is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives sin. And the word for forgiving sin here is nasah, which has the idea of lifting off a burden of guilt, removing the burden of guilt, not guilt feelings, although that would be part of it, but guilt in terms of true legal guilt for the violation of God's standard. So that's one element in the idea of what forgiveness is. See, one reason people can't love today is they don't know how to forgive. They don't know what forgiveness is. And I was at a a funeral recently, and I heard a great story about the man who had uh, passed away, gone to be with the Lord, and that the story goes that one day he made his wife angry. Now, I know that uh, husbands, you can't relate to this, and most of you wives can't either, but this actually happened. He did something, and it really angered his wife. And so he had gone to her, and he had said, well, that he was, he was sorry. He had apologized. He had asked for her forgiveness. And she was still, you know, muttering about the house and not talking to him and just holding it in. And it was just, uh, you know, she wasn't forgiving him. So he came up to her and he said, now, this isn't right. He had a great sense of humor. He said, you know, this isn't right. I only have to ask God once for forgiveness. How many times do I have to ask you? I thought, boy, that is a great story. We don't understand what forgiveness means. And that happens. Somebody does something against us, hurts our feelings, uh, violates our standards, our expectations, whatever it is, and they apologize. And we don't, we we may say, okay, I forgive you, but we don't forget those little uh, thorns dig deep down into our soul and they fester and develop a lot of bitterness and resentment. It just keeps on going because we don't understand forgiveness because we don't understand love. We don't understand love because we don't understand integrity, and it's got to be based on God's integrity and not our integrity. And we, therefore, we really don't understand grace. Because we get, if we're going to deal with people on the basis of grace, that means we deal with them not on the basis of how they have hurt us, but on the basis of how God, for Christ's sake, forgave them. And if God's forgiven them, who are we to put our play, ourselves in the place of God and not forgive them and to hold it against them? So we have this connection here in Exodus 34 between God's grace, his compassion, his loving kindness, and his forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin. See, he packs all the words in there, so he can't, can't try to make a distinction there. He packs in all the words for uh, or sin that are used in the Old Testament. 
Now, the same idea is expressed in Deuteronomy 7, 9, and 10. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. There's our word emuna again, connecting faithfulness to this issue that He will always act the same way every time because faithfulness flows out of His truthfulness, His steadfastness. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant. There's that word again. He keeps His covenant. He keeps His promises. And his loving kindness, there it is, his faithful, loyal love to a thousandth generation to those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, last time I put this chart up here on the board that we need to go through several times to get this embedded in our thinking. That God is sovereign, which means he rules the universe. And he rules the universe according to his standard, which is based in his integrity. And he allows sin and evil to continue for a time. For a temp- It may appear to us to be a long time. It's been over 4,000 years, 6,000 years at least. And uh, we wonder when he's going to bring this to a conclusion. But he has a plan, and he knows more about the details than we do. And so we have to rely upon the fact that his rule is based on his righteousness. So somehow there is no inherent conflict between the existence of evil and God's righteousness. There is a higher good and must be a higher good. And what happens is philosophers come along and they just in their finite knowledge, you know, that little you know, molecule compared to the size of this whole pulpit, you know, one little molecule down here is their extent of their knowledge and this pulpit is all possible knowledge, perhaps. They say, well, there can't possibly be a good high enough to justify the existence of famine and wars and disease and suffering. Well, how arrogant can you be that on the basis of this little speck of knowledge that we humans have that uh, you're going to say that there can't possibly be a higher good? Well, God says there's a higher good. It's related to the outworking of the angelic conflict and the demonstration ultimately of his integrity. He is justice, he's love, he's eternal life, he's omniscient, which means he knows everything. And we don't know anything compared to his knowledge. And even a million years from now, our knowledge that we accumulate in heaven is going to be minuscule compared to his omniscience. His, his knowledge is infinite, and our knowledge will never be infinite. It will always be finite because we're creatures. So we're always going to be learning. Now, that's a great thing for those of you who are here on Bible class on a regular basis because you like to learn. Just think all those Christians who don't like to learn, you know, heaven may be hell for them. They're going to be spending eternity learning. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's more powerful than all the circumstances, any circumstance that we can possibly come up with. And so in light of his omniscience, his omnipresence, which means he's present to every point of reality at the same time, so he's never unaware of anything, uh, he is always able to act in terms of his righteousness. And his actions are always expression of his veracity and his immutability or his steadfastness. Now, we use different terms. These ten terms are not necessarily the terms you'll find in every systematic theology. They'll talk about the comprehensible and the incomprehensible attributes of God. They'll talk about his aseity. There's a good word for you to look up. It's A-S-E-I-T-Y. Just look it up. I'll give you a little homework assignment. His aseity, his immensity, 
all of these different theological terms that have been developed down through the centuries. But if you boil them all down, these ten words pretty much categorize everything. And every term you come up with, holiness, you can that's related to his righteousness and justice. The fact that he's the creator, that's related to his sovereignty. He's unique, that's related to his sovereignty or related to his holiness. All of these things can be uh, subsumed under these characteristics, which I did last time as we went through all of these connecting passages that form a backdrop or framework for praying the kind of prayer that Solomon is praying. And so I added those into this particular slide, that in his sovereignty we have God's unique, he's incomparable, there's no one like him, he is righteous, it relates to his holiness, he's upright, he's the standard of of everything, he's just, that means he has, he consistently applies his righteous standard to everything in his creation, He's love. He does that which is best for his creatures at all times. And he can do that because he has integrity and he knows all the facts. And none of us know all the facts. So how can we always be just and right in our love unless we're basing that on his integrity and his love and what he says in his word? Uh, He's eternal. He's omniscient. He knows all the facts. He's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. Now, these omni-prefixes here indicate that the, the application of his infinity. Infinity is another expression. Eternal has to do with life with no beginning and no ending. He's self-existent. He's infinite, and there's no bounds to any of the, these characteristics. You can't limit God. There's no limit. He is infinite, and his infinity is also uh, uh related to his immensity under omnipresence. That's part of what we'll see in some other passages we'll look at. He's omnipotent. He can work wonders like he did at the Red Sea, like he does at Jericho, like he does at Ai, giving the Jews victory over the Canaanites, like he does uh, with Elijah and the miracles of Elijah, and he does with uh, the miracles of our Lord. He is omnipotent. He's veracity. He's truth. So that Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus embodies truth. He defines truth. Uh, recently, I've run across a phrase I've heard some people use. Somebody here ran it by me the other day that, that truth ultimately is a person. God ultimately is a person, but God embodies truth. I'm not sure you can say that truth ultimately is a person. I'm not sure that's the, quite the right way to say it. A person embodies, expresses, and defines truth. That's what God is. His thinking defines truth. Uh, immutability. He is unchanging. He is uh, faithful. He is stable. Uh, he is the only thing that we'll ever know that doesn't change and that is always, always stable. And then we went through this slide where we focus on just these four foundational attributes, his righteousness. Whoop, I'm going too fast. I did that last night. Whoop, slow down. It doesn't, I get impatient. It doesn't go fast enough for me, and I hit the button too fast too many times. Righteousness, love, justice, and truth. This becomes foundational for understanding everything that God is. These aren't contradictory concepts, which is what finite man does. He comes along and he says, well, 
you know, we're just going to take the love of God and we're going to blow that up and that's the main attribute we have to run everything through. That's what Schleiermacher did. It's just feeling, folks. Just feeling. Why do you go to that church? Well, I feel good. I just, I, I don't want to think anymore. I don't want anybody to challenge me. I don't want anybody to tell me that maybe I'm wrong. I just want to feel good. Let's just all feel good and hold hands and, and there won't be any problems. Don't worry about content. But, see, love has to function on the basis of righteousness. And righteousness is the standard. So love is not standardless. It's not contentless. And it is also related to truth. So there's integrity love. Love without integrity isn't love. It's just selfishness. So Solomon understands these things, and this forms the backdrop of why he can go to God in prayer and claim promises. Because he knows that God is going to fulfill that which he has said that he is going to do. So we go to verse 24. Verse 24, he reminds God of what he has done and how he has fulfilled his word in the past. And so what he's doing is he's, he's, he's expressing the precedent that, God, you promised X, you performed X. Now, you've also promised Y, and I'm going to pray that you will fulfill Y in the future. That's the structure of this prayer. He is using one example of God's faithfulness to his promise to as a basis for his intercessory request to God to, for Israel's forgiveness. And so he says, God, you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. This takes us right back to the Davidic covenant in Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, 7, verses 12 and following, where God promised David that he would have an eternal throne, an eternal uh, dynasty and an eternal kingdom, and that this would go through Solomon. And so Solomon is saying, this has happened today. As part of the Davidic covenant, God said that, that uh, you want to build me a house, David? I'm the one that's going to build you a house, but I'm going to let your son build the house that you want to build for me. And so it is at the dedication of the temple now that Solomon is reflecting upon this and says, right now, I have completed the building of this dwelling place for God, and you have fulfilled the promise that you made to David, uh, my father, your servant David. You have both spoken it with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, this is a pretty interesting little uh, phrase here that he has spoken it with your mouth because in Numbers, God's, God talked about um, his, the way he spoke to Moses and said, unlike other prophets, I speak to you mouth to mouth. So this shows the uniqueness of God's promise to David that he spoke with his mouth to David. You fulfilled it with your hand. Hand is used as a, it's a, it's a figure of speech. It's an anthropomorphism, meaning God doesn't have these actual physical human body parts, eyes, nose, hand, uh, but they represent certain parts of his character, his attributes, his policies, his plans. Hand is what we use to do things. And so when it speaks about the hand of God, it is talking about his operation, 
what he does, what he performs, his power, his omnipotence. So he spoke with his mouth. When God speaks, he is, he, he is always faithful to what he says. And he is fulfilled with your hand. He has done that which he has said as it is this day. So Solomon sees that what has happened that day is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to David. Now, when we started this, I, I gave a little introduction on, on promises, how you claim a promise, what it, what it means to claim a promise. And one of the key principles is that you always have to make sure who the promises are for. God made promise, specific promises to specific individuals. He made specific promises to Noah. He made specific promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to many other people in the Old Testament. He made specific promises to specific groups of people, both in terms of judgment, in terms of Gentile nations, and in terms of blessing to Israel, promises embedded in the covenants. And he makes promises to the church. He makes promises to the disciples. He makes promises to every, that are true for every believer throughout all of time. And so you have to make sure that when you're saying, God, you promised me X, you better make sure that you're not pro- claiming a promise that God gave to your next door neighbor. You can't go in and just start saying, okay, God, uh, I read this in the Old Testament. It's a great promise. Now fulfill it in my life. You have to make sure that it's a promise that's not for Israel, and it's a promise that is uh, that is one that can be universalized and applied uh, in our life today. So he says, you've kept what you promised. And the word here in the Hebrew for promise, there really isn't a word for promise. You get that nuance from the context. Whenever you have... You spoke your word, which is the literal translation. You have kept what you spoke. You've kept what you said. You've done what you said. You fulfilled it that you have done it. You fulfilled it tells you that that what was said is not just a simple statement. It is a promise. So the word devar there for uh for, that's translated promise, it's actually translated that way because the word davar can mean word, it can mean thing, it can mean incident, it has a wide range of meaning. And so you look at other elements in the context to find out uh, just exactly which nuance is being emphasized here. And so it's actually translated as a, as a promise because there's statement and fulfillment terminology in the context of the verse. And when we talk about the faith rest drill, we talk about mixing faith with promises. And that phraseology comes right out of Hebrews 4.2. And it is related to the Exodus event. For indeed, the writer of Hebrews says, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, gospel being the good news, not necessarily the same content in the Old Testament as the New, but it is the good news was proclaimed to us as well as to them, that is the Old Testament Israelites came out of the Exodus, but the word that is the logos, the message of doctrine, the promise, notice it has the same relationship to devar here, the Hebrew word, but the word or the promise which they heard did not profit them. God promised them that he would take them into the land of Canaan and he would give them victory over the Canaanites. And that that land was promised them. He promised it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And and it's a clear promise. And God said, I can do it. And they went into the land, and they sent out the 12 spies. And 10 of the spies did not understand what the mission was. The mission wasn't, go see if you can do it. 
See, this is what happens. Numbers 15 is a classic example of bad hermeneutics. They misunderstood the command. The command to the spies wasn't go see if you can do it. It was just to go check out the land so that they would be able to, they would have a geographical understanding of the, of the terrain, the layout, and they could see what God was going to do. The mission wasn't to see if they could defeat the Canaanites. God had already said he was going to do it. That's not their mission. But ten of them misunderstood the mission, and they came back and they said, well, we can't do it. There's, there's too many of them, and the, the cities are walled, and there's giants. And they didn't understand that the Canaanites were scared to death because they had heard about what happened to the mighty Egyptian army in the Red Sea. They had heard about the ten plagues. They knew all about it, as we learn later from Rahab. And Moses even said it in his song in Exodus chapter 15. But those ten spies had no faith. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust his word. They didn't trust his integrity. They didn't trust his promise, his power, his character. They weren't walking by faith. They were walking by sight. Empiricism will get you in trouble every time. The Christian life is not like everything else. It is a life where we walk by faith in the word of God. It's not irrational. It's rational, but the content and focus of our rationality is what the Bible says. And what God says, and because God is omniscient and knows all the facts, he can make promises that he can fulfill. And so in, in uh, Hebrews 4.2, they had heard the promise. It did not profit them. It did them no good because they didn't believe it. And the way it's expressed is it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. And the word translated mixed is the word sunku. Uh, Soon karanumi, soon karanumi, which means to mix something together, to join it together, to intermingle it, and it's the idea of taking the content of God's promise, the content of His Word, and believing it, trusting it, relying upon it. That's what it means to claim a promise. It means to hold God to what He said He would do, and to say this is exactly what what Solomon is. Uh, exhibiting here in his prayer. He says, God, you said you would uh, allow David's son to build the temple and you fulfilled it. Now I'm trusting you because you also said that if these people sin, you will ultimately and eventually forgive them and bring them back to the land and I am going to pray that you will do that. That is the focal point of his prayer. So in verse 26, we, we see him say, Now therefore, o, Lord, o God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. Now here we run into another interesting word. You ought to be tracking this word, because this is one of those words, Hebrew words, that just keeps showing up in different formats. It is the... Hebrew word aman, emuna, faithfulness, emet, truth. These are all forms of the same Hebrew word. And here it, the word aman uh, is a nifal, which means it's a passive, and it's adjective. Now there's, for those of you who like grammar, that's probably a word that you just haven't run across in English. A um, 
Adjessive is a, an imperatival form. It's a third person imperative. Not let you do something, but let it, you know, he, she, it is your third person. Let it be done. That is a, so we don't have third person imperatives in English, but that's what adjessive is. It is a Hebrew third person imperative. They have a first person imperative too. It's called a cohortative, but adjessive is enough new vocabulary. That with aseity, that'll give you something to do before you go to sleep tonight. Uh, now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed. Let it be established. And it has that nuance of let it become a foundation stone. Remember, the root idea of Amman is this foundation stone, this which is unshakable, this which is completely and totally stable, this which doesn't shake or or, or doesn't get rattled. Let your word become established. Let it be absolute, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. So his initial request, this is his first major request in the prayer, is keep what you promised to David. So this is his execution of the faith rest drill. He's reminding God of exactly what he had, what he had promised. And he says, let your word be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant, my father, David. And then verse 27, is a, it's, it's a parenthetical. Grammatically, it doesn't fit between verse 26 and 28. And verses 28's grammar picks up where 26 ends. So it is, it's a total aside as Solomon is focusing on God and on the fact that God has allowed him to build this temple, which is a dwelling place for God, his mind is going, is already tracking with God's omnipresent. He's, he's immense. You can't localize God. How in the world can God dwell on the earth? How can the finite localize himself? I mean, the infinite localize himself in a finite space. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer is yes, because that's what God had promised David, that he would allow his son to build a temple that would be a dwelling place and would be the focal point of the witness for truth on the earth, would be right there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and all the nations would be able to come there and learn about God and learn truth. That was God's evangelism uh, program in the Old Testament. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Yes. He says, Behold, heaven and the heaven, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. That's his omnipresence, his immensity. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So he, he realizes the greatness, the grandeur, the immensity, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of God, and that as, a, as an aside, as a parenthetical, And this prayer shows us that what undergirds this is Solomon fully believes and trusts in who God is, as God is the one who is able to do what God promised he would do. And then he comes back to his request in verse uh, 28. And he says, Yet regard, 
This is really a bad translation, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And that just doesn't catch what is said in the original. The original starts off with a a cow perfect. Now, when you have a cow perfect, this gets into technical Hebrew grammar. You don't need to necessarily know the technicalities, but what this shows is that the the nuance of this verb, the and, and that's how it should be translated, and turn. That's the first two words in the Hebrew, and turn. Not and regard, but and turn. It's an anthropomorphism. He's saying, turn and listen to me. Is, is, is the thrust of what is being said in this, uh, in verse 28. And the and in the Hebrew grammar picks up the nuance of the previous verb. And since verse 27 is a parenthetical, it's going to pick up the nuance of the aman, let this be, let your promise be confirmed. Aman back in verse, uh, 26. And that, I said, was adjustive. Remember, that's a new word, new vocabulary word. It means it's a third-person imperative. So when you come here, even though it's just a, a cow perfect and turn, it picks up this imperatival nuance. Now, I remember some years ago reading somebody who said, Oh, how can, you, how can people use an imperative in prayer? Well, imperatives are used a lot of ways. Imperatives are used by a drill sergeant commanding his his new recruits to fall in. Commands are imperatival forms are also used when an inferior is making a request to his superior. Would you please do something? You know, the the imperatival voice is is a, is a are, the imperatival mood is a mood that is addressed to the volition of the object. That's all it's doing. It's addressing the volition of the object. In a superior to an inferior, it's a command. From an inferior to a superior, it's a request. And so that's what this is. It is a request, an imperative of request. It is properly stated with all of the proper protocol that you would use in an inferior expressing his wishes to a Superior, he is not dictating policy to God. He is requesting God, yes, sir, would you please do what you said you would do? Would you please turn and listen to what I am saying? And that's the essence of, of what this means. It's not saying yet regard the prayer of your servant. Literally, it is and turn uh, to the prayer of your servant. And to the supplication, uh, O Lord God, to listen. And that verb comes much later on in the English. It, it, observe, it looks like it's a, a compound verb, regard and listen, but it is literally turn to listen. It is, the, the, the listen is, a, is an, inf, an infinitive construct. And so he is saying, Please turn, pay, please pay attention to this request is, is the idiomatic expression we would have. Please turn and listen to uh, the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And at this point, we're running out of time, he uses four distinct words for prayer. 
He uses one word for prayer that has to do with uh, making a request, a common word for making a plea. He uses another word that has the idea of requesting a favor. We translate that into English as supplication. He has another word that expresses either a cry of joy or a moan of misery, and it expresses the emotion that lies behind the request. And he uses a fourth word that has to do with intercession, but it's a word that's laden with judicial overtones and is frequently found, uh, is, is sometimes found in the Old Testament in judicial context. By the time you get into the intertestamental period, the Mishnaic period, it is used frequently in judicial context. And so what it does is it once again brings us back to the fact that that our relationship with God are defined within covenant structures and, this, and his righteousness, which is the expression of a legal standard. So we don't have time to get into all four words for prayer tonight. And these words are going to be repeated subsequently in the following verses in 29 and 30. And so to understand how all of this fits together, we'll just wait until next time. And we'll start next time with understanding the significance of the four different words for prayer in uh, Solomon's prayer and in the Old Testament. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together to reflect upon prayer. Prayer is a means of claiming promises. Prayer is a means of, of calling upon you to pay attention to the details of our life based on your promises, based on your provisions that you have revealed to us in your word. And we pray that you will make these things clear to us as you have promised through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and that as we go through the days to come and we think about how we pray and what we pray for, that we will think more conscientiously about how uh, you have structured these things in your word, what you have said, what examples of prayer that we can go to in the Old Testament, and how they can improve the way in which we communicate to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.